Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Studio. I'm your host, Martina Flor, and in this show, I have honest conversations with artists, designers, and creatives to uncover their story and the specific tactics they use to build a successful career around their skills and the work they love doing. In this podcast, I have interviewed dozens of accomplished artists and creatives to basically answer one valuable question. How did they get there where they are? Now, while we prepare for all the greatness that is coming on season three, I'm releasing this special recap episode, which features some of the best moments of season two in one place. So you can always dig deeper and go listen to one of these episodes. For the full list of guests featured today, see the episode description right below where you press play in your podcast app. Or as usual, you can head to martinaflor.com slash podcast and find all the details there. Please enjoy. Episode 32, Malika Favre, doing what feels easy, making good money as an artist, being famous, going viral, and choosing a city to thrive. So when you joined the, the internship, um, that was another milestone for you? And in which, in which way do you feel, or in which way do you identify those milestones in your life? I think... Uh, yeah, I, it definitely was because also it was the first time I was actually in a work environment. Mm. So it was the first time I could test myself and I could mm. see, do I have something to bring? Am I good enough? Uh, what are my skills? Mm. And actually, I think, you know, for example, the drawing for me, it's something that always came very naturally. And I think as a general rule, we tend to not value things we can that come easy to us, mm. you know, and... And, and we tend to think there is nothing special about it because it's not through hard work and suffering. Yes. <laughs> or maybe that's French, I don't know. But there is a little bit this feeling of like, you can't be complacent. If you're good at something, you should work on the other things, which is bullshit. Yeah. So, so basically, when I, I think I, I very, very quickly in the, when I did my internship, I realized that I was good. Mm. Like, you know, that I was fast. Mm. More than anything, I was fast. And they realized that too. <laughs> like, I remember I was, I was, I pitched, I was an intern and I pitched with them uh, for a big uh, MasterCard illustrated campaign, huge billboards in airports and we won. And I actually got to do those illustrations. Mm. So, you know, I wasn't just an intern who was making coffee and, and really fast, really quickly. I was making real projects for real clients. Um, you know, I was the cheapest designer there was back then. <laughs> and, and I think that's when I realized that, that there was no point for me pursuing, in a way, graphic design because I wasn't that good at it. Hmm. It wasn't my thing. Hmm. And, but illustration, I had something. Hmm. And, and I think for me, it's, it's when I really worked on my illustration, you know, on finding my voice. This is when it started, when I kind hmm. of thought, okay, this is what I'm good at. I need to work on that. You know, fuck logos. I'm never going to be good at it. But drawing, you know, this is my thing. It sounds like a dream job, what you're describing. It's a place where, you know, even being a design agency or an, an advertising agency, it is a place that allows you to develop that skill that you had already. Um, so I wonder, why did you decide to leave? What was, you know, what, what, was, <laughs> what was the background of that decision? Well, because... Or what, what were you pursuing? What did you think that you were missing by working for someone? I think of... when, I, when, I, when I entered Airside, I was very... Um, 
uh, I had very flexible styles, so mm -hmm. I could adapt. And actually, mm -hmm. that was part of the job, you know. I think we had a common aesthetic. Of course, I loved that everything was pop, colorful, minimal. But their style was very strong. It was mm. very Japanese. It was very like these little cute characters. Um, and, and I was totally happy doing that. And I loved it, you know, for years. But I think slowly, in a way, um, the fact that they let me explore my own style as well. Because there was an another amazing, I mean, it was an amazing place. Huh? I love them. Um, what, what was great about it as well is that the studio had a shop. They had an online shop. And the idea was that any designer on this spare time, or you know, when you were waiting for feedback from a client or you had nothing to do, you could come up with something for the shop. Could be mm -hmm. a t-shirt, could be a sculpture, we even did jewelry. Um, so it, it, that was the, you know, the moment where you could kind of do what you felt like doing. Of course, it had to fit within the aesthetic or within, you know, the, the, the image that Airside had, but it was a place where you could develop more your own voice. And for me, that's how I found my style. I mm. found my voice by creating t-shirts and screen prints. And so the first thing I came up with was the, my first alphabet, which was the alpha bunnies, like little bunnies making sexual positions. Um, and, and I think this is the first time I was like, Ooh, this is different. Like, mm. this is me. Um, and you know, and every time you produce something, you had to submit it to the team on Monday morning and say, look, I came up with this. And then there was a vote or, you know, they were saying like, yes or no. And, and then they were putting it into production. And so basically that's how it started. So after that, I always had the client work and the airside work. Mm -hmm. And then on the side, I had my personal work, which was also being released through airside. And I think after six years, simply, I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't mm -hmm. want to do someone else style. I didn't want to, I felt like, I felt I could, I could go further and, and also I wanted to be paid more. <laughs> that was also yeah. the thing. Yeah. So fast forward, I don't know how many years, but a decade at least, um, you're now an established illustrator. You have yeah. worked for big brands, big clients. It's been 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you have, you know, you exhibit often, um, and your work shows up on the New Yorker cover often as well, which is a little bit of a, a stage for great talent. And I know that there, there might be a lot of people listening right now that are young illustrators yeah. and they look up to you and they want to be where you are right now. And they want to see how, you know, how you made it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm now personally interested interested in understanding how is that for you how is that um how is it for you to have all that exposure and recognition and if this is something you enjoy and if this is something that has as well downsides um so if you feel that at some point all that exposure had an impact on the way you behave on the work you do on your results on the way you made decisions well, it definitely has an impact on, on how I make decisions. But I think, I mean, there is famous and famous, you know, because I think it's kind of like, for me, I always see it as like a niche. Mm. I'm famous within a small niche. 
but really like you know the guy next door doesn't know who I am and I don't I got recognized on the street maybe five times in my entire life which is already good <laughs> you know <laughs> but five times it's not you know so so I think in a way I, I really enjoy the notoriety mm. because it gives me access to amazing clients and amazing projects and you know it really it gave me freedom freedom mm. to say no freedom to choose my project freedom to be a little bit of a diva if I want to mm. and and so I think for me, it's only been positive. Like I don't regret any of it. Mm. Um, and the New Yorker is good exposure because mm. it's not, you know, you're not becoming the Kardashians, you know, you're, you're being exposed to like-minded people as well. So I yeah. think, you know, there is nothing nasty that came of that. I think it's almost, I get more scared when, when I do projects like, for example, when I did the, last year, the poster of La Merced mm -hmm. in Barcelona, yeah. I did yeah. the poster of the city, um, the, the annual, you know, uh, festival of the city of Barcelona. And that put my work in every single home in mm. Catalonia. And that was different because I was not talking to designers and I was not, you know, it was everyone. Mm. And that was a little bit intense, like all the press going with it, all the emails you receive for like really bad projects, mm. <laughs> you know, like all the kind of the avalanche of reactions in Twitter and people finding it, you know, this is horrible. This is, I mean, there were some stories, you know, that this side I really don't like, like, you know, people commenting and saying like, oh my God, she's copying the New Yorker. That was hilarious, actually. When they were actually saying I was copying the person doing the New Yorker covers. But, you know, you get, you kind of start getting these attacks. And yeah. I think this is a side of notoriety that I really hate. Mm. So... I think that's also why I'm very protective of my image. Mm. I do very little video. Um, I'm not in the public eye. If you look at my Instagram, I think you can count on two hands how many photos of me there are. Mm. Um, I think I, I really make a difference between the persona and the work. Yeah. And I know that I could be more famous if I put my personal life on there. Mm. You know, if I shared more of that, but I don't want to, I'm not interested. Yeah. Like, because that's also has its downside and I don't want to enter that world. Yeah, um, I want to go back to something that you said before, because you just mentioned that you left that job because you didn't only want to develop your own voice, but you also wanted to make more money. And I love yeah. an illustrator who makes that statement because I feel that in our discipline, there's enough negative thinking around what is possible for us as yeah. artists that we cannot make money that we don't we cannot find clients and going back to some of the things you said in the beginning related to your upbringing you mentioned that it was because you didn't have money as a kid it was very important for you um, as you were growing up and you were a teenager and you were choosing your career path it was very important for you to to do something that will make you money and yeah. looking at your success right now and that you're a well-paid illustrator um, and you work for big clients, um, I wonder if you think that this mindset that you had um, had an impact on your success. If you feel that yeah. this idea of like, hey, I want to make money no matter what I do, um, you feel that this attitude had an impact on, on how you are paid nowadays. 
Yeah, so I, I think, of course, I think it did. And I think it's, it, it also, I changed the way I thought about money and the way I perceived money changed a lot over the years. Hmm. I think when I was a teenager, uh, I was quite obsessed and, you know, and my brother as well, actually, he's, he's very successful too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I think I kind of, I was thinking of money like for almost, for the wrong reasons. I was hmm. valuing it for the wrong reasons. Um, because what happened is, Actually, what happened when I was at Airside is as well being in such a small studio, I had access to everything. Like there was no like hiding the budgets and everything. So I knew exactly how much money they were making yeah. on projects and I knew how much I was paid. Mm. So, so, I mean, and I like numbers. So it was very easy for me to work out mm. that there was big margin, you know, yes. and, and, and I think also being in, also I have to say that the London context made it possible mm. because for example, Barcelona is much harder. Mm. It's much tougher. Budgets are much smaller. So I think it's harder to make it as an artist and to value yourself because no one else does. Mm, you know mm. so but in London there was money everywhere like mm. I, I could see the projects we were working on and how much money there was and I was like if this is basically if I'm doing this entire project almost on my own within this studio this money exists mm. so of course you're not going to get the same fees as an entire studio but I realized there is money in illustration yeah. If you, if you value yourself, if you find the right clients, not, you know, and that's also the thing. Then later on, when I went freelance, um, of course I realized that, um, there is no free lunch. A lot of money often means very little freedom. Mm, mm. You know, it's, it's not paradise out there. Mm. The best projects, it's not that they are badly paid, but like for me, I love editorial, you know, mm. I love magazine covers. Never is a magazine going to pay you the same as an advertising company mm. for a project for the same amount of work? Yeah. But the value of it impacted as on the world, the, 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 the quality of the work you can do is the value. So I think also at some point I realized I want money, but why do I want money? It's not to buy myself nice things and, you know, like show off mm. what I want money because I don't want to have to worry about that. And I want to be free. I want to be free to say no and free to say yes. Episode 43 with Eric Marinovich, launching your career through a side project, friends of type, trusting your skills, having a personal venture capitalist, new form and starting a new business. So that was a big bet to just, you know, invest that time uh, to create a portfolio of work, right? What do you think or what, what would you say are the other big bets that you did throughout your career? Besides investing that one or that one or two years into just getting better at lettering and developing a portfolio. Yeah, great. That's such a good question. Big bets was surrounding. It's funny. My dad, again, being Eastern European, he has these like little quips that he'll say. And I remember growing up, he would say, never bring home anyone, you know, I won't like <laughs> Just crazy to think, but you know, he said it enough where literally like it's that little voice in the back of my head throughout this, like my life as an adult, where I would ask myself the question, is this someone I would bring home to introduce my dad to? And that big bet was surrounding myself by humble, kind, more talented people that were willing to be transparent and be patient to 
either share their applied knowledge and help you get to the place they see something in you maybe it's because you're motivated maybe it's because there's a spark of talent and are willing to take time out of their life to invest in you, to to encourage you or show you different tips and tricks to become better. Hmm. The second bet is I'm not I'm not a confident person. Hmm. I, I've become more confident as I've get as I get as I've gotten older. But hmm. the thing now looking back is when it comes to my work, I've always been confident with it. And that was a big bet, was just believing in myself, believing in my process, although really hard at times and backbreaking physically, sitting in a chair for 12 hours at a time, but just seeing through and believing in what I can make was a huge bet that really paid out. Just And also giving myself the time to see ideas through into their final execution. Um, and then what else? Um, yeah, I, I feel like I wish, yeah, those are, I feel like the two big, those have been key, key things that have helped me Hmm. is the people I surround myself and then just the confidence in me and my work. And Eric, just fast forwarding, I don't know, 10 years, how how long have you been doing this? Yeah. Yeah. 10 years. Over Um, 10, over a decade now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that you are what we will call an accomplished lettering artist. No one doubts that you have the skills, that you have <laughs> made a lot of work in the in the you know in the discipline. Um, what would you? Why would someone start a new business when you are already <laughs> running a, a successful business in lettering? You now started a new form, which is your type foundry. Yeah. Um, yeah. what led to, to do this? Yeah. So I found that in the podcast that I've listened to the connection, I think I'm the connection I make to either the host or the interviewers. I think when there's some sense of full transparency, hmm. cause it's very easy to just sugarcoat our timeline in life for the sake of, I only have an hour. I'll just condense this yeah. story into, Oh, it all worked out. So <laughs> pandemic hits and I go from having a studio in San Francisco shared with, um, you know, my colleague for a long time, Jessica Hish, and then, um, and then my other friend, Tina Hardison. I go from that to the pandemic hitting to mm. literally doing a 360 where I'm now at home. My two small children are doing remote learning. I've mm. now become pretty much a homeschool teacher because in the gaps between them sitting in front of their iPad, getting their lessons through their teacher, there's these big spaces between. So I became PE teacher, English teacher, um, you know, social emotional teacher. (laughs) And my schedule looked like this. I was at Mm. home. I was with them until 530 until my wife, who has a full time job. She is on Zoom all day. So I was up until 5.30, start prepping dinner, and literally it was like uh, a wrestling match where I like just tag her. She tags me out of the ring. <laughs> I go upstairs, and then I proceed to work until the work gets done. So I yeah. became a professional dad, and I was still a prof- like in my professional practice of lettering. Mm. Mm. And a lot of those nights look like me being up until 3 a.m. for like almost eight months to a year. 
Oh, okay. And then I had this moment in which I did an all-nighter. I was up here and I was walking downstairs and I fell down my staircase and like injured my back really bad. Yeah. And in that moment, I pretty much had a mental breakdown, panic attack and Mm. just like curled into a ball. And yeah, it was, it was the moment where I knew this wasn't sustainable and Mm. I had just been leading myself on for a year or so thinking that I can make this all work. I can Mm. be there for my kids. I can be there for my business and still, Mm. you know, support the way I need to for my household. Mm. And and sorry, in that just, moment, just to, um, to get a little bit of context, yeah. you were doing, you were still doing essentially client work. Lettering. Yeah, lettering, yeah. yeah. Like lettering, I was doing lettering full time. And as yeah. all of us know who do lettering, it's, 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 it takes a while, especially yeah. dependent on what the ask is. If it's complicated, it has a lot of, if it's a paragraph, that just means a lot more time to actually physically mm. make it. Yeah. So I was at the mercy of no longer having this big space during the day to work. And now it was very condensed. I had this evening to just do it all. Hmm. So I burned myself out, injured myself. And luckily during this time as well, since what we do is solitary arts, right? A lot of us are always at home doing our own work all the time. Um, I was pretty lonely, right? I wasn't in a studio. I wasn't talking to, you know, my colleague Jessica and Tina anymore. So my friend James Edmondson, who runs Ono Type Co., he suggested of doing this accountability call. So Mm. every Monday and still to this day at 1.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, we meet and talk for 30 minutes to an hour. And we have an agenda of the things we want to accomplish, the things Mm. that we're intending to work towards for the year and so on. And he's always been a very big proponent of he runs his own successful type foundry. He was always like, please make a type foundry. Mm. Just make fonts. Please make fonts. And he hit that drum for a very long time. And it was that moment where I had that incident where I fell down the stairs where I'm like, maybe this is the time where I need to make the shift, where Mm. it isn't about the client work. It's about rededicating myself and the time I have somewhat similar to what Friends of Type was for that first two years, where it was just pure the output was purely my work that I saw in my head that I needed to see out in the world. And I wanted to see if I could do that same kind of moment and shift businesses and Hmm. work on developing a type foundry. Episode 56 with Lauren Hom, how artists make a good living with their art, going freelance, promoting your work, passion projects, connecting with your people and social media. And I want to dig deeper into what were those first months? You know, what was the first, um, what was that, that first day where you decided, okay, I'm going to go solo. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to open my own lettering studio or, you know, freelance business as an artist. I want to know a little bit more about those first few months. How did you, how did you navigate those and how did you get your first lettering gigs and uh, your first clients coming in? Yeah, so I think when people hear about someone quitting their full-time job and going freelance, oftentimes the stories get sensationalized, like, oh, one day I just woke up and I wasn't happy and I quit and now I'm super successful. And (laughs) I was raised by very cautious parents. Um, I don't know about you or anyone listening, but they had the best intentions, but very cautious. So even as 
someone who does take risks in her career and if anyone who is creative takes risks that's like the heart of creativity is sitting down to a blank page or screen and going for it right mm, yeah. so for me I wanted to have the most seamless transition possible so when I realized I wasn't unhappy at that six month mark right I started doing all those things like I mentioned before while keeping my full-time job for a couple more months so while I was putting together my lettering portfolio right um, in like a more serious way because I had been doing a couple you know lettering gigs on the side here and there little freelance projects I'd say nothing nothing bigger than a couple thousand dollars, maybe like a magazine cover was the biggest thing I had done. Mm -hmm. And I started reaching out to agents. Um, that's another thing that I did while I still had my full-time job. Uh, again, saving more of my paycheck to keep building that cushion so I felt more comfortable because money is certainly a big part of when you're considering leaving your full-time job, you might need the money and that's certainly a consideration. So for yeah. me, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to save up as much as I can so I have a bigger safety net, so I have a longer runway in case work is slower. Um, and I do have a funny story to share after this once I actually quit my job. Um, but what it looked like was just slowly like working on my lettering business and getting that together while still going to my full-time job, but feeling a little less pressure because I knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I think mm. that a big moment for me was looking around, uh, you know, a couple months into the job and realizing that, okay, here, here are people who have been here for five years, 10 years, 20 years, and they look just as stressed out as I do. Like, I don't know if anything's going to change. And so I was doing all those things while I still had my job. I ended up getting in contact with a couple agents who emailed me back uh, and signing with one before I left my job. So I was getting all my ducks in a row. I guess that's mm -hmm. like an American expression. I don't know if <laughs> it's a German expression as well. But uh, I was doing that while working my full-time job. So it was definitely a chaotic three months. But you know, when you really want something or you're determined to get out of a situation, you just kind of put your head down and work towards, you're, you're very motivated, I can say that. Because um, it's just, it's so easy you know, when you're when you get into work and you're talking with your coworkers, people oftentimes are like, you know, how how are things going? And you're like, oh, they're good. We all say that things are good, and we don't really we're not super honest with each other, especially like even even as coworkers, right? Or in in the creative industry, like how's freelance work? Oh, it's good. Um, but I th that's why something like this podcast and blogs and when artists get really honest and open, I think that's when you can have a lot of breakthroughs because there's so much stuff going on all the time and. There are things we can change and little things we can do to make our creative work better. Um, so yeah, I think th that's what the first first couple months looked like of making that decision. But I think you might have also been asking, like, when I actually left my job, I remember waking up the first day on like a Wednesday or something when I uh, didn't have to go to work and it feeling so weird. It felt so strange to just say, wait, I don't have to go anywhere today. And the first couple weeks were fine. I had, I, so the way that my business has worked for the last decade, I don't have clients on retainer. Um, I don't know if you do, but for lettering, it's very much like gig to gig, um, I would say for yeah. me. And so I knew there was no guarantee of work per se, but I had, I had lined up a couple of gigs working with this new agent. Um, and so that felt really good, but then as those slowed down a little bit, I started, you know, even when it slows down a little, you're like panic because you're used to having a consistent income. And I had my money saved, but I was still, again, 
very risk averse, very cautious because of how I was raised, I ended up getting a part-time job as a dog walker in Brooklyn <laughs> the first couple months after I left my full-time job. I was making like $15 an hour walking dogs and I was like, okay, I'll get exercise, you know, I'll get to hang out with dogs, uh, it'll be good for my health and it's only a couple hours a day and then I can go home and do my freelance work. And that's actually what I did for, I was planning on doing it for as long as I needed to to feel comfortable um, and honestly to have something to occupy my time because oftentimes going from full time to completely freelance where maybe you don't have to work that day can be jarring from a lifestyle perspective. So I started walking dogs and luckily as I was walking dogs, client work kept coming in and ramping up. So it got to the point where I was like taking client calls on dog walks and I was like, okay, I think I, I, think I need to quit my dog walking job. <laughs> I, I love the story because um, I think that what you said before was on point as well that, you know, I, often we hear these stories and these are the stories that I, I like to kind of throw light on and understand how the artists got there, where they are right now. That, you know, often we hear these stories of like, okay, I, I you know, I just decided to go freelance and I launched my website and then he client work started coming in <laughs> and this, this, this doesn't really happen you know it's like it's really a process and um, I think it's so important to hear these stories because it's not always like okay I started my freelance business and everything just happened overnight but it's more of, of a process also a process of not only like getting cons consistent work but also getting used to the the state of being a freelance you know you go from being an employee to becoming your own boss mm -hmm. and that really requires like a change of mindset and a change of attitude and a different structure in your life right and i think it's great that you point that out oh yeah a hundred percent i think you know in in today's age of you know needing to grab people's attention very quickly and distilling your story into a little sound bite Oftentimes it does sound like, yeah, I just I was unhappy and I quit my job, but like you said, lots of little steps, putting yourself out there, making personal projects and publishing them. Um, like you said, taking the initiative, like the employee mindset or being your own boss, you mm -hmm. taking the initiative to not wait for someone to give you a project or opportunity, but to create your own, where it's like, okay, cool, I'm really interested in food, and so I'm gonna make personal work about food and put it out there, put it in my portfolio, share it to my social media, talk about it nonstop, right? Say that I'm, I love to do illustration or lettering work in this area. And yeah, it's not gonna happen overnight, but you're planting little seeds and they're gonna mm. sprout at different times. And so that's, I think that's what you, that's what freelancing requires of you is to just be consistently planting seeds and being okay with not knowing when they're going to sprout but knowing that you're consistently putting, putting that out there. Um, and I wanted to comment on your point too about saying like, saying what you wanna do or what you wanna be out loud. Like oftentimes uh, in my own life and in a lot of my students' lives, as a creative person, it's so easy to get caught in your own head when you're, especially when you're alone and a solo freelancer, you have all these thoughts and these ideas and they're just kind of bouncing around in your brain. Writing them down is oftentimes a good step to like organize them, but speaking them out loud to another human being is really, really powerful. I was just uh, talking to a class the other day about this. I was saying like a marketing strategy that I encourage anyone and everyone to do is, let's say you want to be a lettering artist or you want to paint murals. Uh, 
Anytime you meet someone new and they ask, hi, like, I'm so-and-so, like, what do you do? Or, you know, what have you been up to lately? Talk about yourself as a lettering artist or a muralist. Say what you want to do and let people know because the other day I was getting my hair cut and I was just chatting with my stylist and we ended up talking and I told her like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm painting this mural. And she was like, oh my gosh, I know a couple people who have been looking for a muralist. So you really never know who's looking for the skills that you are offering. And I know it seems like, okay, social media is the only way to do that, but even offline to friends and families and people you interact with in your community, it can be really, really powerful. Word of mouth marketing is still one of the strongest types of marketing. Here are the bios of all the guests featured in this episode. You will find a full list of the episodes on the show notes so that you can go ahead and listen on your favorite podcast platform or watch them on martinaflor.com slash podcast. Malika is a French illustrator living and working in Barcelona. Her distinct style has made her one of the world most sought after commercial illustrators. In addition to her personal creations, running a successful online shop and publishing her books, she works for clients around the world. Publications such as The New Yorker and Vogue, as well as international brands like Sephora. During this show, we dived into Malika's earliest steps into illustration and art with her mother, the decisions that changed her life and career path, and her money mindset, and how that influenced her ability to make a good living as an illustrator. Malika, Malika shared openly experiences, but also her thoughts around social media and going viral, which is something she has experience with. And she shares great insights around how the character of a city can facilitate their accomplishments as an artist, which I think could be helpful for any artist thinking of relocating cities. You can find her on Instagram at Malika Fav, that is M-A-L-I-K-A-F-A- V-R-E, or online on malikafarb.com. Eric is a Berkeley-based lettering artist and type designer, and is a co-founder of Friends of Type. Since 2009, he has drawn letters, logos, and type for big clients like Nike, Target, Google, Hilton, Facebook, Ford Motor Company, among others. After over 10 years of running a successful solo business as a lettering artist, he launched New Form, a type design practice that looks to the culturally offbeat and peculiar oddities to inspire and inform the creation of expressive letter forms. Eric is not only one of the most talented people I've ever met, but also a humble, sweet person. During our conversation, Eric opened up completely to speak about his insecurities when he first started in the creative industries and how he went from feeling, in his own words, not very special as a graphic designer to becoming one of the top lettering artists of our times. Eric shared insights on how he financed the first years of his career the people and actions that had a huge impact on his success and the events that led to 10 years later starting a new business despite running an already successful one. Eric also shared real-life numbers on some of the jobs he has done along the way. Because of the international nature of our listeners, I ought to say that 
according to where you are in the world, these numbers may mean different things for you or may have different relevance. Eric lives in one of the most expensive cities in the world and what he pays in rent only could mean several months of income in other cities. This is one of the deepest conversations that I have had in the podcast so far. Lauren is a designer, letterer, and educator. A self-proclaimed artist with a business brain, she picked up hand lettering as a hobby while studying advertising at the School of Visual Arts. Over the next few years, and thanks to the power of internet, she leveraged a few clever passion projects into a thriving design career. Known for her bright color palettes, playful letter forms, and quirky copywriting, Lauren has created work for clients like Vans, Google, and Adobe. She loves sharing what she has learned with others through her blog, Instagram, and library of online courses. Next year, Lauren is heading to culinary school to expand her creative skill set and try something new. Lauren is an open book, and during this show, we touch on Tons of topics, promoting your work, marketing, social media, developing confidence, passion projects, and so much more. She shared her journey that went from being at a job she wasn't happy with to going freelance and working as a lettering artist full-time and thriving at it. Lauren spoke about how passion projects helped her get her work out there as she was studying, some tactics she used to land paid projects that she continues to use nowadays, and even a funny story from her first months taking a part-time gig, Walking Dogs. Having grown a big following on Instagram, she shared a clever approach that helps her have a healthy relationship with it while connecting with the right people. Lauren drops so many pearls of wisdom, and I'm sure you will love this episode with her as much as I enjoyed doing it. So this is it. I hope you loved this episode. You can find me, the host of the show, on social networks, at Martina Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast, where you can see previous episodes find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinaflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you loved this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode of Martina Flores Open Studio. Bye-bye.